Hello, and welcome to America's Eats Podcast, where we talk about the foods you know, but may not know much about. I'm your host, Daryl Bishop. Each week, we'll cover a new and important part of the American fabric of food and drink, and how it won its way onto our table and into our hearts. In this episode of America's Eats, we'll talk about the history of two favorite holiday treats, eggnog and candy canes. Stay tuned and find out how eggnog went from a medieval aristocratic tipple to a sober holiday drink for the masses, and explore how candy canes got their crooks. A nod to eggnog. Of all the Christmas culinary traditions, eggnog is probably the most polarizing. People either love it or hate it. Certainly the name eggnog does not, by itself, sound at all appetizing. The recipe for eggnog eggs, sugar, cream, milk, and spices, sounds more like a cake batter rather than a holiday beverage. The name notwithstanding, the drink is sweet, creamy, and packs hundreds of delicious calories in each cup. It's widely accepted that eggnog is traced back to a medieval drink called posset. Posset was made up of hot milk, sugar, spices, and some strong beer or sherry. Posset wasn't a holiday drink at this time, but made year-round, or made as a medicinal brew to cure colds. The English even had a special drinking vessel for posset. A posset pot looks just like a tea kettle, but rather than have one handle on the back, it has two handles on each side. Possets were especially popular in England between 1500 and the early 1700s. Posset even made a few guest star appearances in Shakespeare's Hamlet and Macbeth. In Macbeth, Lady Macbeth drugs a few possets, which she uses to neutralize a few of King Duncan's guards. At some point during the 18th century, posset made its way to America. It may well have come across with people from noble families who were posted to government positions in the colonies. It soon transcended social class and entered the American diet, where eggs were added to the mixture. Eggs were an important food staple for the early colonists, and many people had ample supplies. The colonists also substituted the ale or wine with cheap rum that flowed north from the Caribbean. Soon, eggnog was common at farms and taverns up and down the country. How the Americans came up with the name eggnog is a bit of a mystery. Because nog is an old Middle English word for strong beer, some say the name eggnog came about for the eggs and the strong beer found in the drink. Others say that it got the name because it was served in small wooden cups called noggins. Either way, colonial Americans loved their eggnog and preferred it during the winter months. If you Google eggnog today, you're almost certain to come across this particular eggnog recipe. 1 quart cream, 1 quart milk, 12 tablespoons of sugar, 1 pint of brandy, 1 half pint of rye whiskey, 1 half pint of Jamaica rum, one quarter pint of sherry, and 12 eggs. Mix the liquor, separate the egg whites from the yolks, and beat the egg whites until they make stiff peaks. Mix the sugar and egg yolks, and then add milk and cream and beat slowly. Fold the whipped egg whites into the yolk mixture, and let set for a few days, tasting frequently. As you can tell, this eggnog is sure to quickly liven any party and is widely attributed to George Washington, who is said to have served this eggnog to guests at Mount Vernon during Christmas parties. 
But according to Mount Vernon historian Mary Thompson, this recipe almost certainly did not come from the Washingtons, as it is not found among their kitchen papers or recipes. This recipe dates back only as far as 1948, when it was published in a small booklet entitled Christmas with the Washingtons. Though Mount Vernon was not the scene of a wild eggnog-fueled Christmas party, West Point Military Academy certainly was. Until Sylvanus Thayer took command of the United States Military Academy of West Point, it had more or less been an ongoing frat party. Thayer was a serious man who worked tirelessly to whip the future military leaders of America into fighting shape. Part of that plan included a ban on cooking in the dorms, dueling, and alcohol. Of course, being clever young men with a little bit of time on their hands and a taste for alcohol, the cadets managed to smuggle in alcohol every now and then. For the most part, they drank responsibly, until one post-Christmas party on December 24, 1826. A few days before Christmas, three cadets slipped away from the campus and crossed the Hudson River where they arrived at Martin's Tavern. There they purchased about four gallons of whiskey. Upon arriving back on the western shore of the river near the school, they were spotted by an enlisted man on patrol who accepted 35 cents to look the other way. Back in their barracks, they hid the whiskey among their belongings until Christmas Eve. At about 10 p.m. on Christmas Eve, the cadets spiked their eggnog with their contraband whiskey and commenced a party. By 2 a.m. on Christmas Day, the party had begun to get out of hand. Two faculty members were tasked with keeping order and discipline that night and tried to intervene, but were met with stiff resistance from the totally inebriated cadets. Both faculty members were assaulted with swords and bayonets and even a pistol. In one comical moment, Jefferson Davis, who later was president of the southern states during the Civil War, stumbled drunkenly down a hall and burst into a room to warn the cadets to hide their grog, as, Captain Hitchcock is coming! Little did Davis know, Captain Hitchcock was already standing behind him. Throughout the night, drunken cadets spilled from the North Barracks and caused damage to other parts of the academy. By the time Reveille sounded, the North Barracks was in a shambles. Banisters were torn from their stairs, windows were smashed, and the hallways were littered with clothes, cups, and furniture. The eggnog riot, as the event was later called, resulted in 19 cadets being court-martialed and sentenced to dismissal from the academy, but only 11 were actually kicked out. The story of eggnog since is considerably more sober. In fact, as the years have gone on, eggnog has lost the alcohol as an essential ingredient and more Americans today drink non-alcoholic eggnog. Today, eggnog is still a ubiquitous holiday drink and comes in a small selection of flavors, from sugar cookie to pumpkin spice. Commercial eggnog is heavily regulated and contains no more than 1% of egg, as allowed by FDA rules. The FDA strongly warns against the consumption of raw eggs, which sort of gives the manufacture of homemade eggnog the feel of a bootleg operation. But, as more Americans seek alternatives to dairy products, eggnog will certainly change with the times and will be around for many Christmases to come. By Hook and by Crook, the story of candy canes. The choir master of Cologne Cathedral found himself with a timeless problem. How to keep his choir boys quiet and respectful during a long Christmas mass? He pondered the problem and conceived of a sweet solution. He would bribe them with sugar sticks. But he realized that such decadent sweets in church could well be seen as profane, so he instructed the local pharmacist and candy maker 
to curve one end of the sugar stick around on itself to form a miniature version of a shepherd's crook. By making the candy into a shepherd's crook, he could justify it as a lesson and symbol of Christ, the Good Shepherd, to anyone who might question his methods. As the choir boys in their vestments filed down the aisle to their seats that December 24, 1670, they were each handed a white candy crook which they happily, and quietly, savored during the Mass. The choirmaster's scheme worked so well that it became a Christmas tradition, and soon children all over Europe were sucking on white candy crooks at Christmas time. While a nice story, it's almost certainly apocryphal. Though primitive stick candy made of sugar did exist during the 1600s, it's not clear exactly how and when the candy cane received its iconic crook. It may well have been added after about 1860, when the modern Christmas traditions we know and love today were taking shape. During the 1800s, Christmas trees were often decorated with little candies, homemade cookies, strands of popcorn, fruit, nuts, and other sweets, including candy sticks. Adding a crook to the candy stick may have been invented by someone who just wanted an easier way to hang them from their Christmas tree. No matter how the cane met the crook, this story includes the inventive mind of another Catholic priest, Father Gregory Keller, who, in 1920, invented a machine that automatically added the crook to the candy canes in his brother-in-law's factory in Albany, Georgia. But what would a candy cane be without the stripes and peppermint flavor? The striping on candy sticks has been around for a long time, but recipes for flavored striped candy sticks have been found in recipes dating from 1844. But before the Industrial Revolution and automation, adding stripes to stick candy took time, patience, and skill, which probably made striped candy sticks and later striped candy canes something of an expensive treat. A Harper's Magazine article from 1886 describes the process of making striped candy in 15-pound batches. After a workman pulled the 15-pound lump on a wall-mounted hook for about five to six minutes, the lump was rolled out onto a heated table where the stripes were added and was laboriously reduced from a two-foot diameter to three-quarters of an inch in diameter and cut in desired lengths. Humans have enjoyed the flavor of peppermint for thousands of years. An Egyptian papyrus from 1550 BCE mentions the peppermint as a cure for stomach pains. Over 1,500 years later, the Romans used peppermint to treat a host of ailments, including gastrointestinal problems, diseases, and even snake bites. By the mid-1700s, the English were distilling peppermint down to its essence, or what we would call peppermint oil today. The English used peppermint oil to fight bad breath and make bitter drugs and remedies a little easier to swallow. By the 1800s, peppermint was widely cultivated in New York and spread west to Ohio and up into Michigan, and by the end of the century, the United States was the world's largest producer of peppermint oil. It's plausible that it was some skilled American confectioner during the 1860s who married the candy crook with peppermint oil and made Christmas history. The high point of the candy cane was during the latter part of the 19th century, when it was highly treasured by children before chocolate became widely affordable. One nostalgic author penned a melancholic poem about stick candy in 1907. I want to go back to the stick candy days, before they made bonbons of chocolate and glaze. I want to go back to the dear little shop where the little old lady sold ginger beer pop and made little cookies with raisins that went like lightning because they went two for a cent. I know the green street where the little shop stood 
and oh, how the stick candy that tasted so good. Lemon and wintergreen, cinnamon bar, each in its round little, fat little jar. I see through the glamour of childhood the glint of sassafras, whorehound, and white peppermint. Today, almost two billion candy canes are produced each year and are mostly produced and consumed around Christmas time. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I know you have a lot of other options out there, and I'm grateful for the positive feedback that I've received so far. I've got about a year's worth of episodes lined up and hope to have you uh, listen to them in the future. Thanks again.